So as you may recall, in the year 2001, Ben Affleck starred in a little film called Pearl Harbor. How can we forget? He won a lot of Teen Choice Awards for movie actor, chemistry, and the film went on to win like bigger awards for things like sound editing. My question to you is today, if you could give any EGOT or any other kind of award, what would you grant him for his performance as a blue-collar worker at the Medford Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> um, perhaps I would give him the full EGOT for that. I mean, here he's an Oscar, but it's like that was so it was stirring. I think when JLo accepts the donut, that's what like clinches the Grammy for me. Absolutely. And I just feel like I'm going to tell my future children someday, like that is death of a salesman. Like if they get yes. assigned that in school, I'll just play them the commercial and it's like, this is kind of it. Get out of here. I'm struggling. <laughs> Okay, everyone, welcome to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm not Ben Affleck. I'm Allison. Thank God. Honestly, like who can take that on at this time? I mean, I just I don't know what it's like to be in his life and I hope he's okay. but it just seems like it's a lot. I think it's telling that he looked so happy in that drive through. And I think it's also revealing of some level of authenticity that a number of people were just annoyed that he was there. Yeah, I mean, it's like peak Massachusetts culture that's like everyone would probably want to see him there, but then also be annoyed at the traffic and line that are caused by him being there. Yes, yes. It's like he's one of us, but we can't handle like his glow up. I don't know. And it's like he could do anything, but he finds peace at the Duncan window. There's like something going on with that. I it also want to... I want to believe that our new friends, Nikki and Isabel, that they sneak in to see Pearl Harbor because they have an interest, if not a crush, I'm not certain about that, on Ben Affleck. I would love that. You might want, you might say they don't want to miss a thing. (laughs) Um, I remember when that movie came out and just like, for some reason, the music video for that song with like the clips of them, etc. It's like, That had such a hold on the culture for a brief, like a larger hold than that movie deserved to have, from what I can recall. I think you were supposed to be taken in by it as a kind of cinematic masterpiece. And what's interesting to me is thinking about, you know, the recent adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is meant to be really kind of somber and meditative. Pearl Harbor was really packaged as kind of like a movie going experience. And it was like, don't bring grandpa who served, but bring your girlfriend who might be like serving a look. It was like a really kind of weird (laughs) moment where it was like, this isn't your grandpa's video set about Pearl Harbor. This isn't like your weird relatives, like old VHS tapes about the war. Like this is for young people. And I think that's part of why it resonated so much with like Teen Choice Awards, if not critical acclaim like I'm not trying to pick on it just to pick on it but I think it was pitched towards that audience I think that's definitely true because what year did Band of Brothers come out it was probably around then I'm guessing but that seemed like it was much more pitched to like this is not a rom-com this is not like there will be no romantic plot line in this it's purely about like what was the experience like for mostly white men serving in the European front of World War II, like peak Tom Hanks culture. But, you know, this was not that. This is like almost like the director was inspired by purely action films and like rom-coms, which like this was still in the era when those were much more prominent than they are now. Um, Thinking sadly about the Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher movie I've not seen, but 
that was a bleak attempt to bring that back. But yeah, I don't think it was tone tonally doing what it thought it was doing. No, and I'm surprised that, you know, on the heels of that, we didn't get Nanea Mitchell, who we're going to talk about today immediately. There's a pretty big lag. American Girl did come out with a contemporary Hawaiian girl around the time of that film, but it's 16 more years before people get the Nanea Mitchell story. And it was just for us very recently that we got American Girls from 1999. So, like, whoever is running this company, like, heard the the cry, like, time is a flat circle, and they were like, that's our new marketing strategy. Like, we refuse to be linear. We will be jumping all over the place. Like, we do have to talk about these girls. Like, we have to talk about them. They're part of our universe, and they are so close to our age. It's like, honestly, it was so sobering to be sent this by so many people and be like, first of all, we did call for this on the show. I don't remember when. But to see it manifested, it's like, wow, is this what it feels like to be Oprah all the time where you just keep manifesting things left and right and they happen? It's like, I don't know that I was prepared to see 1999, first of all, thought of as a historical year or era. Like, Courtney was rough enough, as we all can remember. But this was like, I don't even know what to say about this. Like, the accessories are sending me. I'm staring at them right now. I mean, what are your thoughts on, like, the backstory, the accessories, like, all of it, the choices? So, Isabel and Nikki live in 1999. They are sisters. And we know partially because uh, Sydney Paulson did some amazing photos of them in Seattle. That's where they live. They're super poppy. They're super preppy. They have a lot of American Girl accessories. And they have something kind of iconic to this era of the 90s, which is they're twins and they're twins who have subdivided their bedroom like with a piece of tape. And we get an opportunity to know them through their diaries. And so the way that they kind of are part of this like girl power moment and what they are all excited about, they do not make me feel old. I feel as though that has been the consensus. This does not make me feel old. Other things can make me feel older, but that is not the reaction that I had. What was your reaction? I think they are really cute. I think that they are not going to be part of my collection, not because they aren't adorable or I'm not interested in their stories. I really like to collect dolls and accessories and things that I find interesting and different, right? Like I have purchased things through the years that have really spoken to me. Like that's my general attitude with collecting. Like do I want to have this thing around me? Is there something about this character that I find gripping enough, right, to want Mm. it to like join my dolls? And I think I don't have enough distance from the way that they actually are What I think that these dolls do that's actually productive is like they show us most people didn't dress this well when they were nine years old. Most (laughs) nine-year-olds in Felicity's era did not dress that well either. Like that's the point. That's always been the point. Most people don't live this way in this era. There's a lot of little things about them like having floppy disks and stuff that I find cute. There's something about the 90s of it and the way that it all looks plastic to me that makes it a lot less appealing. That's just a personal feel. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I think for me, when I look at this stuff, it's very different. And it was this way for Courtney, too. When you're looking at someone who's set in a historical era that you live through, you can look at the stuff and for me it's not what it's probably originally intended of of like all the accessories are sort of like a gateway or a bridge or a path to understanding a time you didn't live in that's the point is like it's a way of understanding something that you don't have firsthand experience with so when i see the pizza hut book it set 
I mean, that sends me like I lived that, you know, so it is it's not like, oh, wow, I want to buy that. Although maybe I will someday. I don't know. But like it's more like when I see that, it makes me smile because I remember like being part of that program or like for me, like there's like a red plastic cup in it. And that takes me back to going to Papaginos, (laughs) like you know what I mean? Like the Papaginos of it all, like the smarter child reference on the computer, hearing the dial tone of the modem internet, recalling my grandmother's voice coming through the computer when she was just about to throw us off the internet by calling our house. Like all, it just sends me back to my own memories with the real stuff, not like, oh, wow, I want to own this stuff so I can better understand this world I have no knowledge of. So I think it's probably always going to be a little different maybe for us. To your point about the book it, like imagine if you had a young person in your life and you wanted to talk to them about your love of reading and how much you love to read books and to earn your personal pan pizza. If you hadn't kept anything from that era of your life, I think this would be an awesome opportunity to buy something and to say, you know, these characters are having this experience that I had, which has always been part of the ethic of the brand is to like create those moments and those accessories that will bring people together. I can't picture myself like having that conversation with someone right now. So I always kind of think like, what would be the long-term goal of me owning this doll or owning this object? And when I got Claudie, for example, which was like my most recent purchase, I was so excited to think like I could share this with my niece or my mom who has long been a doll collector. Like we spent like an hour kind of like looking at her and talking about her as a character. I don't feel that same pull. I do think a lot of people are right that it very much is like a Mary-Kate and Ashley kind of vibe. I think if I didn't already own Courtney, I'd be more tempted than I am. I love my Courtney doll. I think she's great. She makes me feel connected to my sister. I don't feel the pull to buy this kind of nostalgia product. Like, but if you put a Molly from 1986 in front of me, who's in great condition, and you say you can get one of her original dresses, I'm buying it. That feels like Mm. a different kind of authentic nostalgia than this. And that doesn't mean that this isn't amazing and cool and funny. I think this is just like not a product that I am going to purchase. I also feel as though you and I have ended up in like the 10th nesting doll inside of itself. And now it's like, I'm not sure where we are with the brand. (laughs) Like we are somewhere lost. They, well, first of all, it's weird because they act like we don't exist. So that's like a very weird, like plot line through all of this is that like, I do feel like the show in a small way has like shaped some of their choices or at least their awareness that like we're out here, like people our age and so on. And yet it's like, we're in parallel lines. We never really interact And yet it feels like they're listening. I don't know. It's very strange. And I think something that blew my mind, I was just saying this to you off air, is like the URL, they have a thing on their website, which I do encourage people to click on, which is called the American Girl Museum. And it's their room where you see the tape down the middle and them holding all the accessories and you can click on things. And I was calling your attention to the fact that um, one of them, Nikki, who's like the skater, um, uh, probably more of like someone who has my aesthetic, you can listen to music that she has coming through her radio. And then the other half of the room, you can hear what Isabel's listening to. And Nikki's listening to like classic, you know, like any early nineties alt band. And Isabel is literally like, if you click on it, it's a knockoff Spice Girl song. 
And yeah. it's amazing. First of all, I just want to say I love both of these songs. It's like a follow-up to Hey Courtney, whoever's doing your music, you're killing it. But it's interesting that it's like they're they're curating a, almost a museum. If you think about it as a museum and not a showroom, it invites you to think differently about like, well, what would be in my museum of 1999? What was my childhood bedroom like? And I actually, I have to go back and look, but when my parents redid their house, when we all moved out, we had to pack up our childhood bedrooms. And I took pictures of the walls of my childhood bedroom because it would never look this way again, which was covered with everything I was into. And so, I don't know, it's like, I guess it just brings me back not to be narcissistic, but to like my own experience of this time, which makes it very difficult for me to engage the fictional interpretation of this time. Like it's impossible to view them in isolation from each other. It's also really interesting to give children who are nine their own computer in their private bedroom because we actually talked about this on our Patreon for February of this year. This notion that even two girls, right, even two affluent girls would have a private telephone in their bedroom and would have a private computer in their bedroom. Really, it's less about affluence and it's less about money and more about safety and what a lot of families were doing at that time. The sort of joke is like you had to wait for the phone line to be clear to use the family computer. It's a very interesting choice to kind of imagine, I think, a level of like non-security and money that is like really unrealistic for 1999. I'm not saying it never happened, but this is like in It Takes Two when you see the super rich girl. Right. Even she doesn't have a computer in her bedroom. Yeah, that kind of was beyond for me. I couldn't fathom that. Like we had a family computer in our like kind of family room area and, you know, it was in a public area and it was shared. So having all this like private stuff is like, well, this is aspirational. It is like it takes two. I was thinking about that. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I'm just scrolling through all of this. It is weird, too. We were kind of saying this before. It's like now anything they do will be like a double dip of American Girl promotion because they've worked their own history into the merch. So the grin pins are in here as an accessory. Somebody has a copy of the magazine. It's just like how meta can we get to get back to your Russian doll analogy? Yeah, and I'm not sure. We've talked about this before. It's like how long can any like fragments of the center hold anymore? Like it's so (laughs) meta. Like people have asked interesting questions about what does it actually mean for Courtney Moore to live in a universe where American Girl exists? Well, it's like they saw those tweets and they were like, just wait. Like you're not even (laughs) prepared for how much. And that raises the question, do Isabel and Nikki know about Courtney or do Courtney, Isabel and Nikki all live in the same universe, which is a universe that has American Girl. To that end, I found myself thinking a ton about Molly while reading the Nenea Mitchell books because they are so clearly in some ways like two of a kind, but also meant to do very different things. And I'm interested in what you thought about the different format like this is really different for us because we really are only just one more character is going to have six full stories like we're fully in the be forever moment of the company and even now these characters which are being passed off as historical they aren't getting a six book treatment they're getting something typical of girl of the year so whatever universal rules american girl had for itself at some point they're all open now i think everything has changed That is true. Um, Yeah, so this was my first Be Forever experience. And I think like mentally, I'm just having a really hard time making an adjustment because 
you know, the way that this, I would say my biggest issue with this book is that the structure of the narrative is really frustrating. And I can't tell if that's because it should have been structured differently or if because it's because I'm so used to the six book arc where it's like one mini narrative that gets wrapped up by the end of that storyline and then you move on to the next thematic, you know, book. Whereas this one, it like keeps introducing kind of things to hang her storyline on around Pearl Harbor and none of them really get developed or resolved. It just is like the book ends at a certain point. Yeah, so we are doing a book that says Meet Nenea on the back, but not on the front. The title of this book is Nenea Growing Up with Aloha, and it is considered a Be Forever classic. Should I read the publisher's overview just to kind of give people a sense of what happens in this book? For sure. So our plan is to read this book as well as Hula for the home front, but we're starting with this first Be Forever volume, which if you read along with us, this is much longer than a typical American girl book, but typical of a Be Forever book. If that sentence makes sense to you, I'm I'm happy for you because you're <laughs> you're as deep into this as we are. Nenea Mitchell may be the youngest in her family, but she still wants to dip her paddle in and be useful. She knows she's grown up enough to help in her grandparents' market. But before she can prove that she's ready for more responsibility, the unthinkable happens. Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, the naval base where her father works, and America is at war. Now Nenea must cope with missing friends and family members, rumors of additional attacks, and drastic changes to her way of life. Growing Up with Aloha, the first volume of Nenea's stories, shows how the people of Hawaii faced World War II with courage and patriotism. Okay. (laughs) I sort of feel like we have a lot to say about this, so I kind of want to get into like what we make of the concept of Nenea and the choices that they made. Yes. Yeah, so I think for me, um, what's really hard about this book is that they were like, we want Pearl Harbor to be part of it. And then I think everything around that doesn't feel like it's as thoughtful as that original, perhaps, choice. This book is by Kirby Larson, and she had not really done much historical fiction until she got invited to write one of the Dear America books that is set during World War II. And of note, she bravely wrote a book called Biddy Baby the Brave. So she has different connections to this brand. I'll also just say that we can talk about the advisory board over the next few, you know, iterations that we talk about this character. Something to keep in mind about this story that I think is worth keeping right in the front. It was reminding me a lot of Kaya, where there's clearly like input from a bunch of people, but there's one predominant person who's given an outline and things to follow. There's been interviews with one member in particular of the advisory board. Her name is Dorinda. This is based on her life, partially. So a lot of the kind of skeleton of this story is based on her own experience. She is called a Hawaii native hula expert and eyewitness to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And her family's makeup is like Nenea's. She self-identifies as having a white father and a Hawaiian mother. And... We don't learn a ton about, we get a very kind of like Molly opening, which is like Nenea is having nine-year-old problems. And Mm -hmm. literally one of the first things we learn is she's flipping the calendar from October to November 1941. And it's like, uh uh-oh, the subtle Subtle. freight train has just crashed, like, or is crashing December 7th. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting to think for a second about how this book is in conversation with Molly's trajectory, like the ways in which um, Kirby Larson was and was not inspired. Like, it's interesting to know it's based on a real person's experience. And there are interviews and things out there of people who were children in Pearl Harbor or that area on the morning of the attack who grew up with a lot of the same kind of memories and issues that Nenea has in the book. But it does feel like the brand is like, we're going to correct from Molly or like we're going to parallel Molly, but with some notable corrections. And it's sort of interesting to speculate, like what year did they start developing this? So she comes out in 2017. So you have to imagine that it was like mid-2010s when they start creating her. And her predecessor, who is a contemporary Hawaiian girl, is 2001. Okay, makes sense. Okay, yeah. And first I want to think about like the bigger shifts in how we interpret the story of World War II. So like Molly comes out in 1986. That's when like the greatest generation sort of interpretation was like, there was not even self-awareness that that was a choice. It was like, that was the interpretation that like, it was all a positive story, little emphasis on like anything the government did during the war that might've been worthy of criticism. Um, you know, Japanese Americans got an apology from Reagan and some financial payout, I think in 1987, but that was not something that was like widely accepted in say movies you would see even like Pearl Harbor but there starts to be a shift or like kind of pivot against greatest generation or like movies that you might compare or associate with Tom Hanks with like an awareness that further scholarship on things the American government did during the war that were not so great which is not to diminish the service of anyone who served but to say it's a really complicated story and I think Nenea comes out of that moment. Or, like, I think you can see a clear difference in how they talk about World War II in this book versus Molly's book. Nenea also, to me, very clearly, based on certain statements that have been made and the way that she is still packaged on the American Girl website, when she – so you can buy Nenea today. Like, a lot of characters we've talked about have not been always in circulation, but Nenea is on the website. You can buy her for, you know, 151 or so dollars U.S. When you look at the way that her story is presented, they were really focusing in this Be Forever era on values. And they basically isolate a few values that they think that this character is meant to represent. And part of what I see going on here is, like, Pearl Harbor is the backdrop. And while they're developing this storyline, they're also developing the real stories from my time storybooks, which are a lot like Eyewitness or I Survived or Dear, more contemporary Dear America books. And what that book does is it actually pulls excerpts from the Nenea book, from the book we just read, and it pairs it with like written out history designed for children 8 to 12. And it basically says like, here's what she's going through. Here's like the real air quotes history. I think part of why that felt necessary or useful is because most of this Be Forever book is about like classic nine-year-old hijinks. And there's something really unsettling to me about the way that Pearl Harbor is both a big event and the way that everything that happens immediately after after is so normalized. Like Molly really like to her credit, like because they wanted to bolster like a greatest gen thing, like Molly is not having it. Like Molly doesn't want to turn up. She doesn't want to participate in a lot of stuff. She wants to like look cute at Miss Victory, but like she struggles 
almost immediately in this book, like this family has a lot of challenges and like people they know are detained simply for, you know, their ancestry. Like a lot of things happen very quickly. The parents in this book really stick out to me as exceptionally like worthy of our attention because there's not a ton of character development, but the way that they very quickly normalize a strange situation I think says a lot about the post 9-11 security state and like nothing about Hawaii. <laughs> like I don't think that is about Hawaii <laughs> at all. I think the partnership they developed with USO for this book, I feel like this was meant to be given to like children of people who are in active duty to say like children have survived situations like this before. Army brats have survived situations like this in the past. And like, this is normal now. Like, this is just who we are as a country. Yes. If you're asked to walk around with a special pass, you don't question it. Telegraph people should just work around the clock and people should just work nonstop for a war effort and be happy about it. I think that's a very good point. Um, it it's interesting that the censorship we were upset about in the Molly books was on the part of American Girl not bringing the Holocaust into Molly's awareness or the history that were presented in Peek into the Past. And our, our upset in this book is the censorship that the parents insist upon after Pearl Harbor. And it's almost like to make a very non-academic reference, like remember Janelle's mom in Teen Mom or or Janelle says to the mom, like, nothing else worse can happen, mom. And it's like, you know, a free, like a powerful refrain for all of us. That's how I feel like the parents were just like an oath they kept to themselves every day where they were like, we are not going to discuss this with her. Like, there was a lot of moments in the book where, you know, as you say, like the book begins in November, we go to school with her, we kind of walk through her life, her life with her two friends, her family, her parents, her grandparents, she goes to hula class by taught by her grandma and then Pearl Harbor happens and the family network that has been sketched out seems to retract in terms of like there's clearly a lot she's not being told yeah. and that gets signaled to us by Kristen Larson or um, Kristen Kirby but it's sort of like there's no resolution of the parents being like hey we know that you're scared what has happened here is really scary and you know, there are certain things we're not going to share with you because we're your parents and we want to keep you safe. But also, like, we should talk about how scary this is. Like, we want you to know what we know and what's going on. There's just like, why are we having the parents normal, like, fight so hard to be like, everything is cool? I think that's how we end up in the situation where one of the there's always a fight, right? You know, because these books are also about relationships that you have with people your own age. The young girl, Nenea, is part of a friend group, and they call themselves the Kittens, and she has a friend named Donna, and she has a friend named Lily. And Lily is really going through it because her family is being persecuted in this moment. And part of what happens is we have a very Molly-esque scene. If you recall, Molly asks a refugee from England, Emily Bennett, to play bomb shelter, in this book, we get a similar kind of dynamic yeah. where the protagonist compares the fact that her father is away welding at the shipyard to the fact that members of Lily's family have actually been like taken away and detained. 
But part of how we got there is because people aren't really being clear with anybody about what's going on. Like we literally have this traumatic event, this attack on Pearl Harbor, and we have this young girl who's like looking up into the sky. She's seeing planes. She's experiencing things. Her school is shut down. Everything feels so uncertain. I think she's able to make that comparison like, oh yeah, my dad's been working a lot too, or my dad has been away to this young girl whose family is being persecuted because she actually doesn't get it. Like people aren't explaining. She's like, wait, why am I not going to school? Molly could be a little bit misguided, but the war was distant. Like the war actually was distant. It's interesting how similar they are when this is literally happening in her airspace. Right. I mean, it's that is what's so stunning to me. And I was telling you before, like, I was trying to take notes while I was reading this book and I was really struggling because I was like, okay, the new structure, it's harder to know, like the subtle, like a freight train plot twist of the six books is like this, like they hit you over the head. Like this is the storyline of this book. This is the major conflict in this book. It's like, they're throwing several different threads at you that you're allegedly supposed to follow. Like in the beginning of the book, there's a reference to something called the Honolulu helping hands contest which has four elements, do a good deed for a stranger, show appreciation for your family, make a difference in the community, and then most mysteriously of all, turn trouble into triumph, all to win a bike, okay? Like you have to do all four of these things. So Nenea's like to her friends, we're gonna do this. And we start leaning into this. I'm like, okay, this book is gonna be about how the contest is an understanding, like a, a framework she uses to navigate her response to Pearl Harbor. Nope. No, that is not what this book is about. <laughs> then we get we go to school with her and we get a very subtle, like a freight train history of Hawaii. Nenea knew that way back then, this is on page 17 of my edition, the rich sugar plantation owners decided they would make better rulers than the queen. They made a plan to take over the government, but those men didn't care about the Hawaiian people the way the royal family did. So it's like, okay, so this book is about her navigating being half Hawaiian and half basically white. Her dad is from Oregon. No, that's not what this book is about. And it's like, that's the only history of Hawaii you're going to get other than the importance of Hawaii as like, or Pula as a storytelling oral history mechanism. And then you have this ongoing plotline of her doing things without asking that are allegedly intended good deeds that then blow up in her fate, people's faces and create more work for them. And her dad is like on page 26, you need to think before you act. And I'm like, okay, so this is going to be the trajectory <laughs> of this book. She learns to think before she acts. Again, no, maybe. And then Pearl Harbor happens. And then one of her friends, Donna, whose family, his her father is in the military. Again, Nenea's father is not in the military. The, Donna's father is. Her family are told, you are non-essential. You're going to be moved to the mainland. And so then Nenea is like, okay, well, I'm going to do some navigating of what an essential worker is so that Donna can be classed an essential worker and get to stay. Again, that's not also, it seems like not what the book's about. I don't, I'm sorry, but like this is, that's what I have in my notes. Like which of those things do you think this book is about? I think it could have been about Uncle Fudge, like a lot gets dropped about Uncle Fudge and then we lose yes. Uncle Fudge. I think is a corrective to the Molly narrative where she's given a dog and then the dog seems to just disappear 
To her credit, Nenea's dog goes missing in the chaos of the aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and we get a lot of air, like space dedicated to finding this dog, Melee, and then we discover, again, very subtle plot point that the dog has actually fallen into where other family members are digging to create a bomb shelter. It's very interesting because it's like, if you could picture a big chalkboard and it's like, we need to include all 38 of these plot elements. Like there needs to be a bottle yes. drive. There needs to be a funny nickname for these gals. We need to have a scene where someone explains that hula is part of the rich oral tradition of talking history made into dance. And it's like, okay, I've got it. We're, someone's going to make lays. Someone, we're going to do a lot of lay making. We're going to learn that aloha means hello and goodbye. We're going to learn a bit about that. There's a moment in this book that made me long for extended scenes that we've had with other characters. If you remember the role of the grandfather in the Cecile books, how we really came to like love his perspective, and there's been a lot of grandparents who have done that for us. There is a scene where Nenea is with her grandfather and he talks about how before they had a radio, he was able to listen to essentially the sounds of his Hawaii, right? And there's all these moments where it's like we're sort of flirting with talking about the elephant in the room, which is the U.S. military occupation of the island, but we don't go there. Like her friend's family is actually not essential. Like they actually should be somewhere else. And there's no one really explaining, like, the actual military context of anything. I even found myself saying, like, oh, man, I hope Donna stays. And then I was like, wait, no. (laughs) Donna needs to go. Donna needs to get out of here. I mean, that's what was so crazy to me is, like, colonialism is the missing – this book is actually about colonialism. That's my reading of this book is, like, ultimately it's, like, people who can't – who are afraid to name the problem, which is, like – How do we meaningfully contribute to a war effort that is basically on behalf of our colonial overlords? Like, it's even written out of the history that Nenea presents to us about the history of Hawaii. Like, the thing I just read before says that business owners, plantation owners, decided they would make better rulers than the queen. And included in that ends up being um, a member of the Dole family who go on to found Dole Fru and own much of Hawaii. But it was also the U.S. government. Like, it wasn't just the business owners. They co-signed it. And Grover Cleveland said no, but then McKinley said yes. Like, I mean, am I crazy? No, so Hawaii is not a state at this point. Hawaii does not become a state until well after the war is over. I think that's why the choice to make her father of vague origin, but it's like, Oregon. He used to celebrate Thanksgiving. And there's all these kind of like weird signals to his background, but no overt references. When this character comes out, I mentioned that they paired up with the American Red Cross and they paired up to like kind of have this sort of like program where any dollar you gave up to a certain amount, American Girl would donate to USO. There's a thread in here, which is sort of like military occupation, like military lifestyle when certain elements of martial law become normalized during war. This book is doing that, but it's doing it for readers in the mid 2000s. American Girl put out a video when Nenea was debuted and they talked about like two main things, one of which was Nenea exists to teach you the value of Kakua and this kind of value of being like doing good deeds. They then kind of flip it and it's so interesting where you turn the corner and it's like, and here's how Kakua is in action in this book. And it's like, she helps the war effort. 
they talk about how you learn Hawaiian values. And it says, you can pretend to be here in Hawaii, carrying a gas mask, an ID card, all those parts of history Nanea will share with you. And it's a really kind of like, for me, like gut punch moment of thinking about the way that like some children, right, like necessarily in the United States, like documents can change your life, right? Like if you have certain documentation Mm -hmm. of who you are, it changes your life and changes your status. I'm thinking of like dreamers in this particular moment. And the way that this book kind of normalizes, like sometimes the good deeds are for the empire. And I was like, ah, wait a minute. What are we, what are we doing here? And it's weird because like, that's where the parents, I'm like, you guys are dangerous. Like, what are you doing? Because the parents are saying enough to basically hint at the racism or the colonialism that's driving some of the martial law policies. Like one of them just casually mentions like reading the newspaper, oh, they've declared martial law. And you're like, okay, like interesting. And then they're like, oh, we're all going down to get ID cards. Like, isn't that cool? And Nanea's like, yeah, I guess like no one on the mainland has to get one. That's interesting, but we all have to have one. And then it turns into like a good deed that she's doing, presumably to keep Donna as a, you know, essential worker, maybe for the contest, although that's kind of in the rear view at this point, where she's like, oh, for these kids we're babysitting, we're all going to make a craft where we make holders for our ID cards if you don't carry a purse or a wallet. And it's like, it just quickly moves to like from not questioning, like there's an introduction of like, hmm. No one on the mainland has to have these cards on them all the time, but we do. And then it moves right from like, that's interesting. Maybe let's question this to we're going to make a craft so we can easily carry them around with us, like totally normalized. And to go to where this book starts. So it literally starts with her turning the calendar from October to November 1941. We know what happens in December 1941. It's February 1942 that Roosevelt issues Executive Order 9066, and this officially authorizes anyone who is, quote, deemed a threat to national security to be relocated inland. It's an evacuation. What actually really, like, something I I learned in this book is that starts immediately, though. Like, before the executive Mm. order has actually been issued, people in Nenea's life are being taken out of their homes. Her father is electing to work overtime as a welder for the war effort. She, Nenea, is electing to collect bottles because she knows that people need them for certain things. Other people in this book are making no such choices. Choices are being made for them. And that sympathy moment for Donna, choices are being made for her family because her father is part of the military. He is part of the military occupation and he is needed elsewhere. This book, there is a moment where we learn that her older brother's birthday is June of 1942. If you recall, that is when Molly is at camp his birthday is the day before the D-Day invasion and is happening during the Battle of Midway. I was like, what are we doing? What are it's we doing like here? so many wild choices. Yeah. And it's like everyone has to make sacrifices during the war, but it's like everyone around her family is actually the ones who have to make sacrifices or like choices are made for them, as you say. Like Donna has to leave. That's why I was thinking, oh, like Nenea's dad isn't in the military because then they would have had to leave. Or like, you know what I mean? Like there would have been choices made differently because he's a service member versus him being essentially a private contractor. And yeah, I mean, this whole thing is very odd. Like the way that that's casually introduced that the discrimination against um, the Suda family is just 
absolutely nuts to me. And just casually, it's like, oh, well, we had to turn in our camera and radio almost immediately because of the threat that we pose. Like there was a belief almost immediately that Japanese Americans in Hawaii had done work on behalf of Japan to like help them succeed with their invasion of Pearl Harbor, which then gets brought up awkwardly in the book. And then at the very last minute in the book, it's like, oh, by the way, those were rumors. I guess that didn't happen. There's suspicion that they are, you know, cutting the cane fields in a certain way to guide the bombers, right? There's all these different things that come up. American Girl, when this character came out, they say that there are, you know, three key things that they want young girls to take away. One is a spirit of togetherness. One is that they should show compassion. And the other one is celebrating diversity. So they say this is a value that you should get from Nenea. Quote, even though suspicion arises about those of Japanese descent on the island, Nenea is loyal to her friends and defends her patriotism. Now, here's where I think American Girl as a brand in some ways can't win, because if they lean in too hard to like a camp, right, and to that kind of experience, that is making one of their very, very few characters of Asian descent or lineage a trauma story. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, I am an adult reading this book, and I kept asking myself, like, the references to what happened to Uncle Fudge are so unclear and oblique to me. You are really left as an adult to piece things together. And again, I can put that together because I know the history. The real stories from my time, if you were talking about Nenea with a child today, that book pairs all of these things like this book has so many different things going on that don't get explored in depth with an in-depth description written like a history textbook and that's where I find like this be forever choice really interesting you're getting still about the same amount of pages from a character but you're not going deep on anything yeah that's a huge I think that's a really important point because it's a huge absence in this book like even structurally not to have a peek into the past after like you know periodic storylines or topics like it would have actually been really meaningful if after like essentially the first 60 pages we could have had a peek into the past it's like here's a history of like colonialism and Hawaii or like the imperial like the transfer of power the robbing of, you know, indigenous Hawaiian lands that ultimately get claimed by the U.S. government and there's still legal contest over that. When So when grandpa says, the I have a different memory of the sound of the island from my childhood, that would have been around the time or even prior to Queen Lilua Kalani, I hope I have not mispronounced that, sues the American government in 1917 to return the imperial lands to the people of Hawaii. And like, obviously that does not happen and it's ongoing, but that would have added an interesting context, I think, to then everything that happens later. Or like you would have seen like the, we would have had some context for like, when did the military arrive? And, you know, when did the Navy get built up in Pearl Harbor as opposed to like San Diego? Like what's happening? Like, what are the bigger changes here? But you're not supposed to raise, you're not supposed to see any questions about that because this is, I think, part of that moment where it was like, 
multiracial families are an answer to solving these complex issues, like just by virtue of the fact that her father is white and from the continental United States, and the fact that her mother is native Hawaiian, that is supposed to like resolve any question in your mind as to whether there is a conflict or difficulty there. Just like the fact that she has Japanese friends, it's like, well, of course there's no problem. Nenea is loyal to her friends. Nenea is the role model. There's no issue there. Like there's no kind of bigger moment to her credit, right, when Valerie Tripp puts Elizabeth and Felicity in conflict over loyalty to the crown, that feels like a real conflict there. That feels like something mm-hmm. very genuine of young people asking hard questions about a war that is coming. Ninea really struggles with wanting to be treated like an adult. And part of what she learns in this book is that being treated like she's older kind of sucks. It's kind of not what she actually wants. She wants to be seen as not a baby, but she learns that the alternative is taking on adult responsibilities and adult tasks. The irony to me is she's actually not acting like almost any of the adults on the island because she is like blissfully accepting of everyone which is not realistic to that (laughs) moment. And I'm not picking on her as a character. I'm saying like, we are not reading this as 10 year olds in 2017. Like we were adults in 2017 and we are adults reading it now. And it's really to me like a very, almost like shocking portrayal of World War II. Like this idea that like what you're supposed to take away, it's like she shows compassion. Like she uses the spirit of aloha. I would have pegged this as almost more of like an early 90s like fever dream. I agree with that because there's even in the framing of the setup where it's like, well, I go to my hula class on Saturday mornings and that's when Lily goes to Japanese school. And it's like everyone has their own heritage and they're all sort of like not melted down to the same value. But it's like everyone has their own different backgrounds. We're all cool with each other. We all help each other. And it's like, where is this utopia that where there is no racism And you don't see any, you know, even class difference between any of these people. And, you know, it's just, it is, it does feel um, idyllic. And, you know, perhaps that is the truth of some, maybe, uh, what's her name's experience, who this is based on. This is what she remembers of her childhood. But it seems like it's oversimplified or like the differences are smoothed out before there's any real conflict. So that any conflict that happens doesn't seem that... um, glaring to her or like something like that's why I think she can say well Lily your dad's in jail my dad's been at work like we both are missing our dads because she again we a part of what we talk about it's like there's not there's no point in picking on a random character from a children's book there is a point in saying like what is the vessel that is being put in front of children who are reading this now to teach them about the era? And when Felicity walks through Williamsburg and has no comment there or at her family's plantation on the fact that people she knows owns people, that sends a message to kids now, right? right. So the point the point is not to say like, oh, we just wish this character is different. It's to say, okay, if you are going to put this in front of someone, like what would you try to hope that people would understand about this particular moment? I really think that decision to give her this kind of lineage where it's like there's a whole sort of like funny moment where she learns that her father had once ruined Thanksgiving and she effectively ruins Thanksgiving by not feeding the dog because she's forgetful and the dog eats the family turkey. There's a lot of like funny or like 
cute moments, for lack of a better word, in this book. And if we had six books to get there with this character, I would love to do that because we've done that with other characters, right? Like when Kirsten basically says, like, I'm going to stick my finger in this honeypot. And you're like, I don't think we should do that. Not wise. We've already been through some stuff with her. We've built a relationship with her. To your point, it's like hit after hit after hit. If you play music, it's like all staccato notes. Like you're never able to get into a groove with this person other than she wants to be seen as older than she is. And that's pretty relatable. But like, what are we supposed to learn about Hawaii? We're supposed to learn that when it came down to it, this spirit of aloha, which is truly a Hawaiian concept, is being manipulated for this kid so that she'll carry around a pass. (sighs) No? (laughs) No, that is it. I mean, you just see in a way, like, I think what the book reveals is like the innocence or I don't even know what on the part of her parents to not be able to adequately frame the rapid and sort of stunning, disturbing changes that happen on the home front. Like at one point, you know, Nenea is the person who tells her mom that she's been to the Suda's house and that they had to turn in their camera and their radio. And you see the mom's like primal response where she says, the Suda are not the enemy. Hawaii is their home and they would never do anything disloyal to America. And it's like, okay, and yet this is happening. It's like, yeah, and this is happening. So what does that mean about America? What does that mean about, you know, how we might be treated as Hawaiian people? Like, there's no, like, that would have been an interesting moment for the mom to say, yeah, let's actually talk about how citizenship is complicated. Or like, you know, you know, maybe your dad could go back to the continental U.S. and pass as like be treated as a full citizen. If we went to visit your other grandparents, you know, we look different. Like maybe we would be treated differently. And of course, that would not be fair. But, you know, that's how like racism works or that's how like this has worked. And instead, she's just like, that can't be true. And it's like, OK, but it is. So how did dad get there is a question I have. Uh, Who is Alice? Because this character's actual name is Alice Nenea Mitchell. So it's like you do kind of picture a world in which if things had gone differently, an Alice Mitchell might be able to pass back in Portland, right? Like, but a Nenea, a girl named Nenea, right? Or if she marries someone who has a, a native Hawaiian surname, her life is very different. I just wish I had more time with so many of the characters. When I looked at the like 20 or so chapter titles, it was like war. You know, I just, I was like not prepared to like learn as much as I was going to learn for this. I love the idea of a child going through something difficult and feeling optimistic, but this was kind of giving me like romanticization of Anne Frank feelings, right? Like when people pull the one quote from Anne Frank and it's like, I still think people are good. When you watch the videos promoting this character, she's like, I want to teach Kakua. I think I'd make a great teacher. I want that for her if she wants to enter a helping profession of some kind. I guess I just have a lot of questions first about, you know, who who really like had a lot of input into this story and what are the ethics of like trying to tell this point of view and choosing to essentially not drill down into any conflict at all? Like the fact that Nenea has a misstep with a friend. And as you mentioned earlier, her mother basically says like, your friend is being prickly like a pineapple. And she's like, fair enough. 
<laughs> that scene honestly sent me. I had to stare into space for a second where it's like she comes home after like falsely equivocating or equivocating her experience of like missing her dad at work to Lily's dad being in jail unfairly. And she or Lily correctly is like, this is not the same, like, and is angry. And she comes home and is like, mom, um, like Lily's mad. And the mom's like, yes, this reminds me of when I used to pick pineapples. And sometimes the prickly side, you know, used to irritate my skin. And you know, like your grandmother would give put ointment on my skin. So you just have to think about what kind of ointment you could have that would heal like Lily's prickliness. And it's like, this is not, that is not a fair characterization of like the very real understandable feelings that Lily has. Like instead you should talk about like the, the reality of like meaningful differences and like being compassionate and empathetic. It's just like, that was such a weird pivot moment. I don't know. Like I kind of wish this, I wondered the whole time reading this book, what would this story feel like? if Lily's mom and her grandmother and grandparents were not only proud Hawaiians who want to share their culture and teach hula to Nenea, who is a very good hula dancer, um, but also in, in addition to teaching hula are also like, let's think about some of the words here that are in protest of American atrocities about stealing our like ancestral lands. We are not pro-America. Like we will serve in this war if we're forced to, but like we also were carrying the very real hurts that, you know, our ancestors have suffered and that we have felt in our own lifetime. Like that's just completely not in this book. But that's why it gave me Kaya vibes where there is something underlying here of the presumption that, of course, Hawaii would become a state. Right. When that actually doesn't happen for what would have been like early adulthood for this character, like Hawaii is not part of the United States on the same level as, say, Texas. What it is is a territory that has been strategically selected for the purpose of like potentially waging or defending for war. And right. obviously, you're not going to put that into the mouth of a nine-year-old, but I could see in the hands of a different format, an author being able to really drill down. And I am kind of blaming the format here because I think that has a lot to do with why this book plays as it does. Like if you think of all the plot lines in the Samantha Parkington series, if they were wrapped up into one book, we'd be like, this was a chaotic mess. But 100%. because we get to know her, we get to see like she evolves this girl has to go through all of these changes in about a two-month time period. We spend over two years with Molly. We spend a really long time with her coming to grips with the fact that her life is different, her father is absent in a way that she doesn't appreciate, and Molly and characters like Rebecca, they have to come to patriotism in their own way. There's a presumption here about this girl's background and that she might feel or act or behave a certain kind of way. There is no question that she will participate in USO events. I would love like a side scene with the grandparents where we see any kind of rubbing up against of that. But the only conflicts we get are within the self of this girl and with some of her friends. Like that's the only place that we get any kind of difficulty. We do have, you know, a teacher who acknowledges the fact that this is like really difficult. And then she offers them gum and the scene ends. And I was like, <laughs> well, okay, I guess that's kind of where we are. And maybe that's trying to remind us that they are nine years old and that they are just trying to get through day after day. That's where we have Nanea saying like, my friend is not non-essential to me. You know, it's like striking to <laughs> oh see that God. language now after what we've lived through. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, and it also was an interesting, like, invitation to think about how we define essential work because basically she goes on a, this could have been its own book in a six book series of like her realizing Don is going to have to leave and she's told only essential workers can stay. So she's like, okay, so I'm going to volunteer for a bunch of things. It seemed like to me essential work, like babysitting, making camo nets instead of making lays with her aunt and neighbor. And like, that is really interesting to think about like, what kinds of things do we take for granted that are actually essential parts of our community life? And you know, what makes the cut during wartime? That's interesting. But like you're saying, it's like a very brief part of this book relatively. And it's like, okay, that's interesting, but we're going to move on now because, you know, we're going to find the dog. And also that dog, the timeline doesn't pan out. And I know that's not the point of that storyline, but it's like, oh yeah, they started digging that bomb shelter hole like yesterday. And the dog's been in there since yesterday. This dog has been missing like upwards of two weeks by this point. But didn't we learn from listeners previously when we covered Molly that dogs were taken throughout the war? Wait, what? We learned about this previously with Molly, that dogs were abducted. And that was kind of like bringing that back for me because we had joked about where Bennett went. And then people said, no, like there was serial abductions of dogs throughout the war. We do get a two page inside Nenea's world, which is not a peek into the past. It is much shorter. I do think the description of martial law is helpful there because it does drill down a little bit more into what that means. If there is one book that I think summarizes the historical viewpoint that is like underlying every assumption of this book, it's the last line, which is, across the islands, people of all ages showed their patriotism with true aloha spirit. We've talked before about the fact that Molly like dresses in Hawaiian costume as kind of a joke, right? Like that's a central Mm. kind of like piece of the Molly canon that she puts on this Hawaiian costume and she and her friends do aloha and then all their hijinks assume. This idea that patriotism for the United States could just be like bundled up with an aloha spirit, I think kind of tells you everything you need to know about like where this book or where the editorial team was just like not willing to go. Like they are not willing to go there at all, that there is another story that you could tell about Hawaii. Whereas at least with Kaya, it was like, we weren't talking about like, Kaya was like a proud, you know, American girl. Like there is at least some separation there that she is not part of the territorial United States. I think that's very true. And I think it's in some ways a result of the like the previous history or the ease with which white Americans have put on Hawaiian culture that they would project or imagine that it would be just as easy for Hawaiian people to put on white culture or at least American patriotism in World War II. Like previous to the Nenea books, we had cultural offerings in the style of Julie Andrews starring in a movie called Hawaii that was quixotically filmed at Old Sturbridge Village in Massachusetts, aka a non-Hawaiian looking setting. Elvis Presley performing Aloha from Hawaii, which the proceeds of which funded the Pearl Harbor Monument. And Emma Stone starring as a native Hawaiian character in a Cameron Crowe movie. Like, how unhinged are all these choices? Like, we can, you know, grade them. But I think that says that there's some kind of hubris of white people being like, yeah, we can, you know, put this on like Molly putting on the hula costume. But there's a presumption that at least Hawaiian or non-white Americans would be willing to do the same during World War II or moments where patriotism is called for. And I think the absence of that conflict, I think, is really missing from this book or would have really benefited or enriched this story. 
think it's much the same way that there is kind of this like place for Hawaii in the imagination. When I was a college student, we got tasked with uh, looking through a bunch of life magazines and you literally just had to find something that was of interest to you and write a five page paper on it. And I happened to like stumble across a bunch that were about Hawaii. And so I kind of traced like, okay, how did people in Life Magazine in the continental United States, what information did they get about Hawaii? And they obviously did a lot in 59 when Hawaii became a state, when it became Mm -hmm. like the 50th state of the United States of America. And it's like pretty simple, right? Like it's not super complex, but it was my first experience really doing that sort of primary source research and you still see in a lot of places it's like this notion that Hawaii is a place for Americans to visit to do as they wish to have the experiences that they wish maybe to visit Pearl Harbor but I know that when I visited there I didn't really have a lot of sense of like what Hawaii was before it was a state right like I had some Mm. kind of idea but you're really given this sense I think in the U.S. that it's inevitable that Hawaii become part of the United States like when you're doing your map in elementary school it's like there's this whole big mass of land and then Alaska and Hawaii and in my little elementary school brain those two states were literally next to each other right outside of California because Mm. that's how it looked on maps that I was asked to fill out in elementary school like you're taught that this is kind of just part of a package and I think saying like well she's gonna marshal that aloha spirit Maybe that is based on a real person, right? Like maybe that is genuinely based on a real person's experience. But that choice to make someone part of a family where there is no discussion of what it means to be part Hawaiian and to be part whatever her father's background is, the fact that it's seen as unremarkable enough to be flagged, like it tells you something, right? We don't even really know. It's just like, oh, well, he grew up with turkeys and dogs and his family like writes to them and they basically choose to lie to those grandparents and to say that things are going fine. And it's a rare moment that I, I, a part of this book I really liked when they're sending that telegram to like grandma and grandpops and they say like, things are okay. Like we are okay. Nanea says to her parents, like, no, we're not. We're not doing okay. (laughs) We're not. Yeah, that was a great moment. And I think also like in talking about this book, something that is in some ways positioned us to be more critical of this book, or I think see it, um, see kind of these issues in it, is that Claudie book one um, did navigate the complications of being a non-white, you know, citizen or member of a country that doesn't view you equally. Like navigating these multiple identities of like being a black person in Harlem and understanding, or at least like thinking honestly, like the parents do censor some violence from her, like the mom flips the newspaper over so she can't see presumably reports on lynching. But then we do get the inclusion of like a man was lynched today flag from the NAACP office. So I think there is a way to tell a story for children that is honest about, you know, the awareness kids would have about these conflicting values or like these challenges to receive norms of patriotism or citizenship um, that can be subtly done and not hitting you over the head. But it's so I think that's what calls our attention in some ways to this book where it's not happening. I know where we're headed next is sort of like how does her family and community deal with Hawaii post Pearl Harbor, right? Like what does life look like for her? We kind of have this foreshadowing, I'm assuming we'll follow up on that her brother is about to turn 18. So we have a sense that his life is about to change. 
I do really recommend the stories from my time that gets into a little Mm. bit more of that. We're also going to cover a Dear America book, not by this author, but by a different author from Pearl Harbor early Sunday morning that will kind of give us like yet another perspective. But I know we're also soliciting ideas for really good content that is written from an indigenous Hawaiian perspective or content that gets more into the colonization story. And we can talk about that in relation to choices that are made about this character. Yeah, for sure. I'm very, I'm interested to hear people's suggestions. I'm interested to hear, to kind of just see where this is going. This is like unrelated, (laughs) but I looked on the fan wiki and they list an address for Nenea. Yes. 8087 Fern Street. I looked that up on Zillow in her neighborhood, the average price of a home in her neighborhood today. Do you want to guess what it is? The range? Two million. It's 900,000 to $2 million. I believe that. I believe that. Crazy. Um, so yeah, I'm interested to kind of like keep talking about this and where it's going. And I want to go listen to some, some of the, like this book actually does a really nice job of like hyping up or like describing music with text, which is a very hard thing to do. Elvis Costello said it's like dancing about architecture, like the challenge of writing about music. This book does do that well. It made me want to go listen to Hawaiian music. So I will be doing that before our next episode. I'll report back. Yeah, and I will say one of the most beautiful parts of this book, and it made me interested to see like what other products, I think if this had come out just a little bit later, this idea of Nenea's family having an oral history culture and them being very interested in sound and music and like different, you know, non-print ways to share stories, like if this had come out with like a podcast or something like that for young people, that would have been really interesting. But if you're curious about the advisory board, all of their names are in the back or the front of your book, depending on when you bought it, because I've looked at a few different ones. But yeah, we are reading the Be Forever versions, and our next one will be Hula for the Homefront. So we are we are going into like slightly different territory, and I think I'm, I'm looking forward to see like where we go with her, like how far into the war we actually get. Yeah, that will be interesting. So if you want to join us on Patreon, that's where we'll be reading the Dear America book. Um, and we'll be looking for other content to do here as, as it's suggested to us. Um, and Allison, where can people reach you in the show if they want to reach out? Yeah, so I'm at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow the show at Dolls Lives Pod on uh, Twitter. You can also find us Dolls of Our Lives on Instagram. Mary, where should people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mary, Mah- Mary Mahoney123. Sorry. Um, but Instagram is probably your best bet. Uh, very excited to see what comes next. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you on our next episode. <laughs>